looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that flows between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from Wee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hey, this is April Hunter, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, the Croc, Jonathan Steele. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. This gentleman on the phone, we are happy to have because he is surprised. Currently a Brooklyn, New York, and also proud graduate of Queen's College. His background being in communication and journalism. This man is also a long time still wrestling fan that began writing stories for pro wrestling at the age of 19. He also has written many best-selling autobiographies and is 
a long time studying it for wrestling historian. But besides for wrestling, there's been Maxim, Men's Journal, Huffington Post, Playboy, The Village and USA Today, just to name a few other outlets we've written for. He has also been a TV producer on shows like America's Most Wanted, two to eight hours, along with working with networks such as DH1, History Channel, ID Discovery, AE, MSNBC, CBS, along with many others. The man on the phone right now has written for what we're saying, known in the public as WWE Magazine, when they were a thing, but also, like I said, co-written several autobiographies. Freddie Blassie for one, Rick Flair, the superstar of Billy Graham, and the unreleased Iron Chief one from 2009. The man on the phone, he's Elliot Greensburg. How you doing, sir? Hey, thanks, thanks for the sterling introduction. Hey, no problem. But obviously the new project on the phone, or currently out there, is too sweet. The inside, inside the indie wrestling scene. Or revolution, excuse me. Uh, a lot of words for for a small-minded guy like myself. Uh, book came out on September first. So first and foremost, how's the response been the past few days that it's been out? Uh, thus far, the response has been pretty good. I've been uh, trying to follow uh, the response on Twitter, even answer queries or observations that certain readers have. And I'd say, by and large, people are fairly content with what I put out there. Well, obviously, you have the credentials for uh, writing about professional wrestling, as I just gave a little tidbit there of things you have done. So, and I know this story has been told in some articles and interviews you've done already. But what was it about the Bullet Club and WrestleMania weekend in New Orleans that really caught your attention? Um, well, th- uh, that, that, that's a good starting point. It was WrestleMania 34 back in 2018, and uh, I was there for WrestleMania, but there were a lot of indie shows going on that weekend. Uh, this is a very interesting phenomenon, which I discuss in the book. Uh, every WrestleMania weekend draws dozens of indie promotions who want to showcase their own talent. I'm sure WWE never intended this, but that's what happens. So people come to WrestleMania, and then on the other days, some fans only go to exclusively WWE events, but a lot of fans go to other events too, and they, you know, sample this wide landscape of professional wrestling. And as I was walking around New Orleans, I noticed a preponderance of Bullet Club shirts. And uh, ECW Press's executive editor, Michael Holmes, and I later discussed this. And we said, wow, you know, Bullet Club's not a WWE entity, yet these people who came for WrestleMania are proud to show off their allegiance to the Bullet Club. And as I uh, explain in the book, I define indie wrestling in the widest way possible, and that includes Ring of Honor and New Japan and even, uh, to a degree, AEW, even though many would argue those companies are too big to be considered indie. Uh, but we began to say there's a phenomena here. Um, 
people are not just coming for the WWE. And indie wrestling is not just confined to uh, a handful of hardcores. Indie wrestling is a viable alternative or, at the very least, um, a another choice that people can watch in addition to watching WWE. And we decided, okay, it's time to do a book about the indie wrestling revolution. Well, I want to jump back a little bit there because some of the stuff I had read or read about you was back when you first started trying to get noticed as a writer, you you had some folks telling you, why would we want to commission a kid like yourself to do stories for us on that uh, matter? Who was that at the time? Would it be like USA Weekly and some of those others that no, you was, did business it was, with? It would be it was Us Weekly. I remember having a conversation. At the time, I was maybe 22 or 23 years old, and I was trying to pitch them a story. And I remember they said, um, you know, you're a young kid. I mean, we have a whole staff of writers. Like, what arrogance you have to come up here and just assume we're going to hand you a story. Like, what does a kid like you know that our staff of writers wouldn't know about? And I said, I bet I know more about professional wrestling than anybody here. And uh, apparently I did. Well, what era would that be in 70s, early 80s? No, this would be, I started writing around 78 when I was 19. But um, this would be the early 80s. This would be during the Bob Backlund era. And I remember okay. the first story I did um, for Us uh, Weekly was about David and Bruno Sammartino. It was about Bruno who had this dream of his kids going to college, and David, his, son, his eldest son, just wanted to be in the business. And it was this, you know, classic story, maybe if your father was a – New York City police officer or firefighter, and he had said, you know, I'm breaking my back here so my kid can get an education. And David San Martino was saying, my education has been watching my father. I want this dream for myself. So that was the first story I did that received national attention. And once that was published, I found that I was pretty much able to write about professional wrestling for anybody who wanted a professional wrestling story. Now, back then, professional wrestling did not receive a lot of mainstream publicity. So when a mainstream story would appear about professional wrestling, people in the industry were aware of who wrote it, because this is right before the Hulk Hogan era. And as a result, when I would then introduce myself to people in the wrestling business, my reputation to a minor degree preceded me. And in the the mainstream journalism outlets, they knew I'd written about wrestling before. So, um, you know, I was able to work both sides, which wasn't bad for a young kid. Which would lead me to my next question in terms of from what I had read and heard, you were hired at WrestleMania to work for the company and the new uh, magazine. I wasn't hired at WrestleMania. I was at WrestleMania 1, and I was writing for Us Weekly. I was doing a story for Us Weekly, and I was freelancing. I believe there was also 
a, a heavy metal magazine called Faces, and I was double dipping. I was doing a story on the rock and wrestling connection for them. And um, I was talking to Ed Rusciutti, who was the editor of the then WWF magazine. And as we observed WrestleMania 1, he said, you know, why don't you just start writing for us? And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks went by, but he put me on retainer. I think initially he assigned me a few stories to see if I would work out. And he brought me backstage. And um, I remember... Vince McMahon seeing me, and he knew I wrote for all these different outlets, and he was a little taken aback, like, wait a second, what's this guy doing wandering around backstage, you know? And Ed Rusciutti said, no, he's working for us now. And, uh, you know, I remained on retainer with them for 22 years. Well, obviously, you did the magazine. You went on to do a couple books, as we mentioned in the intro. Is there a favorite part of your time that you uh, had working on retainer with the company? I would imagine for me, and this is just me, that when you were working with Freddie Blassie, uh, how did on you his get? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm guess? just an old school thing exactly at heart. Wow, wow, that's it's something you read my mind when you asked the question. Yes, of course that was my favorite. Um, well, I wouldn't say, of course. I mean, I worked with Ric Flair. I worked with superstar Billy Graham, I, the Iron Sheik, you know, all champions. And, um, you know, the Iron Sheik and I got along very well. I did I and superstar Billy Graham. Um, but Freddie Blassie was 85 years old when the book came out. And it was pretty apparent that he was at the end of his life. And he had all these stories that he had to get out or they were going to be lost to history. And... He knew it, and I knew it. And he had also kept very detailed notes and with beautiful penmanship in, in line notebooks. So there was a lot there. And even though he was, his health was failing him and he would get confused, when he and I would be talking, everything would come right back to him. And, um, you know, for that book, I... I look at my work in a way like a bound documentary. So Freddie Blassie would talk for a couple of pages, and then Killer Kowalski or John Tolis or the Golden Boy Arnold Scullins would come in and kind of pick up on the story, and or the fabulous Moolah. And, of course, all of these people are dead now. So yeah. I feel very fortunate that I was able to chronicle this uh, when I did because, once again, all of that stuff would be lost now. How much? Now, I know Freddie. I didn't know Freddie, but from what I heard of him, he was one to maybe embellish stuff. How much did uh, you have to really dig through the weeds with some of these well, stories? you know, it was, it was playful. He would embellish yeah. when he'd say, I'm God's gift to women, which, you know, to a degree was true. I mean, in his day, he was a very handsome guy, and women were quite enamored with him. But, you know, when he'd say, you know, I'm, I, I have the greatest protégés they ever were, I'd put that in because that was part of Freddie's hype. Uh, but yeah. he spoke very honestly, too. He spoke about his frustrations about being away from home. And he spoke about his desire to reconcile with two of his sons who he wasn't on speaking terms with at that point. And that was heartfelt. 
And Lou Albano of all – no, it wasn't Lou Albano. It was Nikolai Volkov of all people confirmed that. And he told the story about Freddie being backstage and talking about missing his son. And um, Nikolai Volkov said, what's his phone number? And this is before cell phones. And he, he dials it on a phone that was backstage and put Freddie on the phone with his son. And that was all authentic. And I remember when the book came out, Linda McMahon walking over to me, and she said, as close as I am to Freddie, I never realized Freddie had children. And at Freddie Blassie's wake, his cousin came over to me, and she said, you know, the timing was just off by a few weeks because his oldest son was ready to make peace with him. And he read the book. He saw how sincere Freddie was in his apology, and then Freddie died. So they never got to reconcile, unfortunately. Yeah. But let's jump back ahead here for the actual terms of this uh, book. Now, obviously, you said the word indie is a very loose term in terms of what we're talking about. But you go back 50 years or so. Uh, talking about outlaws and all that kind of thing. How has the business changed from your point of view from when you start talking about it, not only in this book, but in general to where we are here in 2020? Well, it depends what, what era we want to talk about. I mean, you know, you, you know, I think I traced, uh, you know, the outlaw promotions. Well, I mean, if you really want to trace the outlaw promotions back, you could go back to the, to the 40s and 50s and talk about Jack Pfeffer, who's mentioned in the book. I mean, Jack Pfeffer would put on shows with guys like, with names like Lou Keds and Bruno San Martino. You know, fans mm-hmm. would think they were seeing Bruno San Martino and Lou Feds and they were seeing imposters. And as I point out, that was not unique to Jack Pfeffer. Uh, later yeah. on in the early 2000s in the UK, uh, there were there was a British promotion who would put on what they called a, a WWE tribute tours, and they'd have a big red machine, and they would uh, have a picture of Kane on the poster, but it wasn't Kane when he got there. And one observer said, you know, a friend of his once said, oh, I'm going to see um, The Rock. And he's like, why would The Rock be performing at an arena that only holds 1,500 people? And he said he got there, and The Rock had a Welsh accent. So, um, you know, that's the carny aspect of the wrestling business that we all enjoy, or I enjoy. Yeah. Um, Harley. What? Yeah, Harley. But um, I would say in the modern era, uh, a, a major turning point was the creation of YouTube. Because once YouTube was invented, it was equivalent to the invention of television in professional wrestling or cable in the 1980s. Uh, You know, if you were a great wrestler who was uh, hidden away in some uh, smaller pocket of the world, uh, your stuff went up on YouTube and, uh, you know, people could see you everywhere and you would be invited sometimes to larger promotions, and you were invited, say, to Pro Wrestling Guerrilla in Los Angeles, well, chances are William Regal might have been in the audience. Next thing you know, you're signed to NXT. So that really changed the modern game. 
Well, the other, uh, or I should say the flip side of that coin for me, at least, with this new book, is, and I received a uh, hardcover co- copy, you know, or, you know, physical copy, where some people get PDFs of books and different ways to see the book uh, because of the advanced technology. Does that bother you in terms of uh, how people actually read it, or you don't really care because, as long as people read the product you put out there? Well, look, I look at all my, my wrestling books as historical documents, you know. Um, you know, and they all tell a different story. Freddie's story starts back in the 30s and goes all the way, you know, in, in the carnival era when wrestlers were still, you know, making a living in carnivals. And it went uh-huh. all the way to the WrestleMania era and the pay-per-view era. Um, you know, Ric Flair's book tells the story of being an NWA champion and the pressures on, you know, being an NWA champion and having to roll into town, make your opponent look great, but still retain the title. And, you know, that that's a, a big, you know, period in professional wrestling that a lot of people don't take into consideration. So... The story of the indie wrestling revolution is a piece of history. And, you know, if people are reading it online or they're reading an audio version or they're reading the hard copy, good, because they're actually learning about this thing we all love. Exactly. Now, obviously, you had a chance to talk to guys like Joey Janela and, you know, from different eras and companies when doing your homework for a book here. It, uh, does the current product intrigue you, being a lifelong fan, but also a historian? Yeah, I was just asked this question, and I'd say it does. I can remember in the 90s being at a WWE show and talking to an older um, observer of the business and him saying, and I, I'm saying, oh, what was the finisher? And him going, to tell you the truth, I don't even know any of the modern movies. I remember thinking, you know, I don't want to be like this guy. You know, I want to know the modern moves. I want to know the, the modern performers. I want to know why professional wrestling appeals to people now. Of course I'm going to romanticize the professional wrestling I watched when I was in sixth grade. But I don't want to be in a sixth grade mentality for my entire life. There's a lot of vibrant things going on and a lot of men and women who are working awfully hard to entertain the public, and I want to appreciate what they do. Right on, because the reason I ask that is because I think of a person who's very friendly to the show, and I'm sure you would know the name if I dropped it, but this person is very critical of the current product of certain aspects. So, and he's a fellow New Yorker, but I love the guy because he's honest, and I appreciate and respect his value to opinion on the uh, professional wrestling business. So. I know who you're talking about, and he is—he's a, he's a really decent human being. Oh, he's one of the—he's a mensch, as they as yeah. we would say. I, I've been having conversations with him like this for decades, so I know exactly who you're talking about, and I'm, I'm very fond of him. But anyway, let's not yeah. say his name, but. But, you know, bring up the point. You, you know exactly who I'm talking about, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's a mensch, like I said. He's right. and, and one of a kind. And when you say that, you know, it can only be one guy. Critical yeah. of the business, but a mensch, yes. Yeah. 
for those but like I said, I respect know, his a, opinion. A, a mensch means a real human being. That's a Yiddish yeah. term. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people know Yiddish anymore. Yeah. But obviously, people can get the book on Amazon or if Barnes and Noble and the different outlets, ecwpress.com. I got to yeah. ask you before I let you go, because obviously people talk to you about your John Lennon book, which is pretty cool and a good New Yorker's tale of the story. But the one that I non-wrestling that really caught my attention was the drummer, because we actually did a special on him several years ago. Oh, uh, Tom Steven with the Jeff Healy band. Yes. You knew where yeah, I was going yeah, with that. that was, now, Tom and I are still very close friends. Um, yeah, you know, the, the Jeff Healy band is a band, you know, everyone's seen the movie Roadhouse. But um, if you mention the Jeff Healy band in the United States, maybe there's a small chance that people will instantly connect it. In Canada, everybody knows who the Jeff Healy band is. And so, you know, Tom Steven, who had been the drummer and the manager of the Jeff Healy band, after Jeff's death, wanted to tell the, his version of the band's story. And that was controversial because... You know, certain people who were close to Jeff Healy said, yeah, this guy was the drummer and him and Jeff used to clash. But it's an unvarnished rock and roll story. Uh, all the triumphs and all the heartbreaks. And, uh, you know, Tom and I became friends and he was very, very open. And like uh, Rick Flair, whose book I also co-authored, he was not afraid to be hard on himself. And, of course, that made it a better book. Exactly. And... I, at the time, you know, when I, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to, like, Jeff Widow and a few other people that surrounded Jeff. But I just know that book. I haven't seen the book, but I, it intrigued me. I go, oh, I got it. Yeah, I'm trying to get my hands on a copy now just because and of it's how much. It's up by ECW Press. You could probably go to ECW Press's website and, you know, and, and order that. Or mm. go to Amazon. Yeah. There you go. But I was always intrigued, and I've been a – I'm only 35, but I've always been a lifelong, not only blues fan, but from an early age, I was hooked on Jeff and the band's music. So when I saw you did that book, I was like, you know, like, jumping for joy, like on Christmas. You know what? I will tell I will tell Tom Steven that, that story because he always feels hardened when he learns about somebody who's relatively young – who, who loves the band. And he especially is delighted when he hears about people discovering the band for the first time. Yeah, I, I discovered them early on, and i just been, I was like, that's it, you know, just the style of music they played and everything else. I'm like, I'm in, you know, I was hooked. So, right. And obviously Jeff was one of the pioneers. He's in my top five of guitar players of all time, that's for sure. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way, yeah. So, anyway, the book, Too Sweet, like we said, ecwpress.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects where you get your books, either your copy today. Keith, thank you so much. It's Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to have been invited onto your show.
with over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jeff! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Hi, this is Booker T, five-time WCW champion and channel manager of Friday Night Smackdown. You listen to Crazy Train Radio. Now, can you dig that, sucker? <laughs> <laughs> 